0: Good morning, friends. It's good to see you all here. i don 't know if you recognize this or not, but we we intentionally try to structure our services to point in a in a consistent direction, as uh, Rick mentioned earlier. We, we intentionally design our services to reflect the rhythm of the gospel in the scriptures. And the parts of our service that we choose, the readings, like you just heard read, the songs, like we've sung, our confession of sin that we read, all points in a particular direction. And I wanna encourage you to be attentive to that and see how it ties into God's word to us which now you're going to receive. And so uh, I want to just alert you to that. Psalm 25 that was just read to you goes hand in glove to Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. And if you'll look at them, you'll see amazing parallels, um, things that encourage your heart. And of course, the verses that we're in today Uh, Psalm 119, 153 through 160. And they speak of a person who has a passionate interest in God, who is concerned about how their life reflects a godly life and whether or not they are actually pleasing God with their affection for him. And part of that, of course, is a person who is committed to prayer. A person with a vibrant spiritual life is a person with a vibrant prayer life. And so we have before us a, a stanza, the Resh stanza, that really identifies the prayer life of the person who is in love with God. And particularly, why it is we can be confident coming into his presence with our prayer requests. Let me begin by reading a a quote from E.M. Bounds, who had much to say about prayer. He wrote, Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. So my question to you is, how do you think of prayer? How would you describe prayer to someone asking? Is it a performance or a privilege, a duty or a delight? Now, what you say (laughs) may be different than what you actually feel and believe, but what do you believe prayer is? Is it a duty or is it a delight? Is it a performance or is it a privilege? And just to, you know, settle your heart a bit, I've never met a Christian who's told me that their prayer life is up to snuff. Not once. And I've met a lot of notable Christians who you know. None of them have answered that question, oh, my prayer life is awesome. They don't. Why? Well, let's dig into this passage today and discover some things about our own prayer life and determine whether or not our prayers our performance or privilege due to your delight. Anytime the Bible speaks about prayer, we ought to sit up, right, as Christians, pay attention, uh, be interested, because prayer, of course, is a primary means of communing with God, our Creator, our loving Creator. That's how He hears from us. We hear from Him through His Word. He hears from us through our prayers and our meditations. And so, as we come to Psalm 119, verse 153 through 160, it's speaking a lot about prayer, and, and we're learning these things about prayer by the prayers of the psalmist. Here, we had to pay attention, close attention. And in these verses, we discover God's answers to prayer, why He answers prayers that we bring. Remember last week. This is a two-part sermon. Last week, part part one. We discovered three ways, or three reasons, why God answers prayer. In verse 153 and 154, we see the first reason, that he knows every detail of our lives. Remember that? Look on my affliction and deliver me. Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Why could he pray those things to God? Well, because because God knows every detail of your circumstances and this person's circumstances. The reason we can bring all these details to God with our concern about them is because he knows them frontwards and backwards. He knows exactly how to answer that particular request. He's paying particular attention to the details of it. He knows all those things about our prayer request. And by the way, he has a specific plan to accomplish his purposes in your life, and will fulfill it. So our prayers ought to sound a lot like Jesus's famous prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. Remember that prayer of Jesus's? That's how our prayers ought to sound when we come. Um, His is a perfect will, the Father's. Ours is flawed. His will for us is best. Ours is selfish, much of the time, that would do us harm not my will, Lord, but yours be done, is a wonderful prayer, no matter what the circumstance you find yourself in. The second reason God answers prayer that we covered last week is found in verses 155 and 157 and 58. And we learned there that God answers our prayers because he's intent on saving his people. Our salvation includes more than our repentance and prayer of confession, It also includes our sanctification or our transformation, becoming more like Jesus, and ultimately our glorification in heaven one day. That is the spectrum of our salvation from actually before time began in eternity past where God elected us to salvation up through all of life where we actually pray the prayer, grow in faith, and become like Jesus one day in glory, glorification. That's the spectrum of salvation. So he is intent on saving his people from beginning to end, which there is no end, of course. Um, If God's going to actually regenerate you, and sanctify you, or transform you, and ultimately glorify you, the answering of prayer is a big part of that. Starting with Jesus's prayer in John 17. That's, That's the prayer that God the Father answers, particularly, and then on down through all the other prayers of human history, your prayer for your grandkids, your prayer for your children, your prayer for your neighbor, etc that brings people to faith, that transforms their life, and that ultimately will glorify them in heaven. But I want you to turn with me, if you would, to John 17, and I want to read for you parts of Jesus's prayer to help you understand how prayer is involved in your salvation. Not just the electing part of your salvation, but the converting part of your salvation and the glorification part of your salvation. So in John 17, Jesus prays starting, well, the whole chapter is a record of Jesus's prayer. But um, I want to start in verse 15. Um, If I can get my Bible to open to that, I got a new Bible and the pages stick together. So it's going to be a while before that doesn't happen every time. But... Starting in verse 15, Jesus prayed, I do not ask that, speaking to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is praying that God the Father will protect us, his children, from the evil one. Sounds like a pretty good prayer for our salvation. Look at verse 17. Then Jesus prays sanctify them or transform them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus was praying that God the Father would use the word of God to transform the people of God. Another part of salvation. And then verse 21 through 23. Jesus prayed that they, that's us, may all be one. Jesus prayed for our unity. Do you see that? Father, uh, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. In th- I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. And then Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's that prayer for glorification. So it's a prayer for conversion, a prayer for transformation, a prayer for glorification. Is what we see coming out of the lips of Jesus. Prayer is an important part of salvation. Jesus' prayer for us, our prayers for one another. God uses them. Back to Psalm 119. The third reason that God answers prayer is found in verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. God answers prayer because he is a God of mercy. Did you hear that when we just heard Psalm Psalm 25 read a minute ago? It was peppered throughout that Psalm. God answers our prayers because he is a God of mercy. God loves to be merciful. Why? Because a primary character quality of God is mercy. He gets a thrill out of being merciful to people that don't deserve it. And we're all in that category. What a wonderful thing to know. He gains much satisfaction in granting mercy to sinners like us. Those are the reasons we've covered so far from the Rush stanza for Um, God's answering prayer. But I also pointed out last week, if you remember, that God answers our prayers, uh, his answers to our prayers are designed always for our good. And so if there is a prayer that you pray that would not turn out for your good, he's not going to answer that prayer. His answering of prayers is designed with our good in mind. He's always drawing himself to us or him us to himself he's always guarding us from anything that would destroy our faith he's always actively building up our faith so when our prayers match his plans we can count on them being answered it's really as simple as that one of God's means of answering our prayers and building up our faith is the church you may or may not have thought of this before but when you're praying for some solution to a problem that you're experiencing, there is a high likelihood that God's answer to those prayer will include other believers. This is fairly common. It says in Hebrews 3.13, for example, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in that case, the way that God is gonna answer your prayer for spiritual growth, your prayer for growing in godliness, is to have other believers in this church speak to you daily about the importance of consistently following Christ. That's how he's going to do it. He's not going to wave a magic wand over you and say, voila, you are now spiritually mature. Wouldn't that be nice? But that doesn't happen. God uses means And his primary means of transforming you into his likeness is the word of God applied by the people of God to your heart and your circumstances. So now we come here to the final two verses in Psalm 119, verses 159 and 160 in this stanza. He shows us the final reason in this stanza that God answers our prayers. Let me read them for you. Verses 159 and 160. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life. Remember, that's give me spiritual vitality is what he's praying. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So let me explain those two verses to you as a reason that God answers our prayers. God answers our prayers because of his steadfast love. God answers our prayers because of his steadfast love. Have you been a Christian long enough to realize God has a special interest in you? Do you know that, Christian friend, that God, the God of the universe, has a particularly special interest in you personally? You don't have to think about that too long to be totally blown away by it. The longer that I have been a Christian, the longer I can see the love of God towards me, his child. I see this also in your lives, I see as you, come to faith and are growing in faith, the things that you encounter, the struggles that you have, God in all his love is orchestrating all the events of your life to communicate to you his special interest in your life. He set his eternal steadfast love on you before you were born. He has determined to save you and bring you to glory one day. He has orchestrated all the events of your daily life in such a way as to bring about spiritual growth, spiritual vitality, spiritual joy. God cares deeply for you. So it stands to reason that he would answer your prayers about these particular things. Doesn't it? Let me affirm this with the reading of Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he did that enormous thing. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We we come to him for spiritual strength, for, for spiritual vitality, for help in certain circumstances. Why would God withhold those things from us whom he's already given his son to? Friends, The all things here in Romans 8.32 doesn't include those things that would draw our affections away from Christ. That would make no sense, right? We don't have to be divine to understand the problem with that. That that God is not going to grant a request of yours that in the granting of it would draw your heart away from him. No, of course not. (laughs) He's going to grant the request that would draw you towards him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Indeed, within this verse, we see that spiritual vitality comes from God's love. You see it there in verse 159. Spiritual vitality, your spiritual stamina, your spiritual vigor comes from the steadfast love of God. Now, um, the reason the author based his prayer for spiritual vitality on the steadfast love of God because he knew that the fountain, that was the fountain from which it came. Our spiritual health flows from the fountain of God's steadfast love. The psalmist was well aware of God's love for his people and knew that God has always been very interested in our spiritual well-being. So how did the psalmist know this? How did he know that that the, the steadfast love of God was the wellspring from which his spiritual vitality flowed? There's two reasons, or two ways he knew this. One was from the revealed word of God, the scriptures told him so. And secondly, his own experience told him so. Let's look at those two things. The record of God's word reveals this truth. Our certainty of God's love is based on the certainty of his word, right? Isn't that true? The certainty of God's love, you base the fact that you believe God loved you because it says so in scripture. Jesus loves me, this I know, why? Because the Bible tells me so. We all, basic. that's a basic understanding of ours. We teach it to our children. God loves you. Let me read a verse for you that says so, dear or honey. We say it all the time. We base our belief of the steadfast love of God towards us on the Scriptures. Now, <laughs> even, even as a, uh, an Old Testament saint, which this author was, th- uh, he viewed God as a loving God, obviously, Many times we hear that the God of the Old Testament was severe, distant, angry, impersonal. You've heard those things, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until Jesus came that God revealed himself as a loving God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Passages like this one that we're in this morning show a different perspective. God has always been loving. He has always cared, and he has revealed himself in the Scriptures as such this is the value of verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. How do I know God's love me? Loves me, and how do you know that God loves you? Because the sum of God's word is true. It doesn't deceive us. It doesn't distract us. It doesn't Lead us down the wrong path. If it says God is love, it means God is love. If he says God loves me, it means God loves me. We also learn God's steadfast love from his word, just like the psalmist did. How do you know this? How do I, from his word and from personal experience. All of scripture. In the, the psalmist only had Genesis through Deuteronomy, and he came to the conclusion that God loved him. We have Genesis through Revelation. How much more advantage do we have concerning (laughs) the, the affirmation of God's love for us? All of scripture reveals God in this way to us. God is love. Old Testament, New Testament, obscure, familiar, all these verses reveal to us the love of God towards us. Now, if you're uncertain of that, Go get your concordance at home and look up love and see how many times that word is associated with God towards you in the Scriptures. It will take you a week to read all the verses. Let me read you just three from 1 John 4, verses 7, 8, and 9. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest to us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God loves us. Secondly, we learn of God's love not only through Scripture but through personal experience. Have you discovered this yet, Christian friend? Now I wanna wanna do my best here to help connect our understanding of the steadfast love of God to spiritual vitality. So the author here is praying, give me life because of your steadfast love, right? How does the steadfast love produce a spiritual vitality in us? And I want you to see that God does this through our circumstances, not just through his word, where he just comes out and says, I love you. But through actual circumstances that you go through, primarily the tough ones, that God reveals his love towards you. Okay. That may be a tall order in your mind, but let's, let me just read for you three verses from Romans chapter five. There are many more, mind you. But let me just stick here, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, he has given to us. Now, <laughs> all of these challenging circumstances that Paul referred to in verse 3, and that he refers to in other places in Scripture, are part of God's love towards us. Um, They're a part of our lives, these difficult circumstances, because God's Holy Spirit uses them, according to verses 4 and 5 of Romans 5, uses our difficult circumstances, our suffering and heartache, to pour out his love into our hearts. Let me read it again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We're really happy about our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope, and hope does not just put us shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit in these things. You're saying, well, I guess I don't have God's love language, right? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't experience love of God when you're going through a struggle with a child or some kind of health issue. Maybe you ought to think about it a little bit and consider the reason why those things are happening. All of these challenging circumstances are part of our lives because God's Holy Spirit uses them to pour out his love into our hearts. In God's eternal love, he uses our circumstances on top of Scripture to confirm his love towards us. He nurtures us in our trials. We become better people because of our suffering. He strengthens us in hardship. He builds up our faith in our affliction. That is love. So, as you go through challenging situations and grow spiritually over the years, you become more and more like Jesus. How else are we going to get there? It's not by membership to the local club. We get there through hardship. And what better thing is there in life or death or the afterlife than being like Jesus? God. Loves us. As we go through life, as we experience hardship, difficulty, pain, and confusion over the things we're experiencing, more and more of the joy of Christ comes our way. More and more dependence on God the Father comes our way. More and more Christ-likeness comes our way. The longer we walk with Christ, the more we understand his love and how it's connected to our circumstances. All of this supports our increasing spiritual vitality, which this author is praying for, which we ought to pray for. Some of you may be thinking, sometimes I feel like I'm less godly or less spiritually vital now than I was 10 years ago. You ever thought that? That's all part of the process of becoming completely dependent utterly aware of our need for our Savior daily and growing in our understanding of the depth of His love. That's part of the process. I don't know if you're like me. I I suspect you are. The longer I live, the more attractive heaven seems to be to me. So, in life we need to realize that we're in the hands of a heavenly potter every day, and our lives are in his hands, specifically loving hands, as he conforms us and shapes us into the image of heaven, image of Christ making us ready for heaven. So spiritual vitality comes from God's love, his steadfast love. Secondly, spiritual vitality Results in a love for God's word. Spiritual vitality results in a love for God's word. He's praying for spiritual vitality because he knows it comes from God's steadfast love. The result of that spiritual vitality or that steadfast love is a love for God's word as seen in verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Now it's important that I clear up a potential misunderstanding that you may have if you just read this superficially. In verse 159, you may read the verse and say, well, God's going to grant me life and his love if I'll just love his word. Right. Consider how I love your precepts. God, pay attention to how much I love your word. Keep Remember, I've, I've gone through the Bible every year, every year for five, 10 years now. You ought to really love me. That's a gross misunderstanding of the verse, but that's how some of us think. If I'll just perform better, God will love me more. You ever had those thoughts go through your head? If you give more, serve harder, you know, wallow more, maybe God will love me more. Let's pass out whips on Sunday morning. Kind of idea. (laughs) But that's exactly what's the opposite of what's being said here. We know that there's nothing that we can do, at least we know intellectually, that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor, right? No, of course not. If you've been here more than one week, you know that. Loving his word doesn't bring God's love. It's the other way around. God's steadfast love produces a love for his word, Because of his steadfast love, the fountain of his steadfast love produces or flows out into a love for his word. The Holy Spirit is present in the heart of every believer, and that Holy Spirit initiates affection for the things that God is interested in. Be imitators of God, Paul said in Ephesians 5 1. Does God care about his word? Let me tell you, he cares about his word. Then we ought to care about his word. We ought to love his word as his son loved or loves the word of God. So this prayer for spiritual vitality is a prayer that that God loves to hear and answer. Why? Because his, his steadfast love produces fruit in his people. The first of which is a love for his word. But whose prayer does he answer? Those whom he has loved and saved. We've talked about this a little bit last week. He doesn't answer the prayers of those who've rejected him, who spurned his generous offer of forgiveness and reconciliation. He doesn't listen to their prayers unless they're praying prayers of repentance and confession. Up to the point of regeneration, every one of us lives in rebellion against God and his kingdom, no one who has rejected God and the gospel would be praying for spiritual vitality anyways, would they? So if God were to answer the the prayers of the unsaved rebels, it would be like a king sending aid to a sworn enemy so that they could build up their army and attack the benevolent king who would sent the aid. We're not that dumb. I'm certain God's not. Actually, we are that dumb. Look at American foreign policy. Um, But that's another subject. The people that God listens to are are those who have embraced Jesus as the Lord and Savior. Those who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Those who have been transferred from the kingdom of the enemy to the kingdom of his dear Son. That's the group that gets their prayers answered. The people who pray these prayers have them answered and have them answered are identified here in this verse. You see it? They're the ones who love God's word. (laughs) You're praying for spiritual vitality, right? God will answer those prayers if he is active in your life, producing a love for his word. They're the ones who love his word. This is an important identifying mark of those who are genuine believers, okay? Every once in a while we come across these in scripture, identifying marks of genuine believers, here's one of them, a love for God's word. In fact, I would say right behind Jesus' primary identifying mark of what a true believer is, that is the primary mark being loving other believers, I think this comes in a close second in Scripture, A love for his word. So if you're a genuine believer, you're going to love other believers and you're going to love his word. Psalm 119 has been a long sermon series on this very topic. Psalm 119 is about the necessity of and love for God's word in God's people. And, and this isn't the only place we find these things in scripture. Only authentic Christians actually love God's word. If your profession is fake then your interest in God's word is little or none. Oh, you may be interested in a verse or two that could get you through a you know, dentist appointment, um, but if your affections really don't lean towards God and his word, then your conversion is unlikely. Do you love God's word? Hopefully, the reason you're here is because of God's word, which would go a long ways to affirming that question. The faithless and disobedient, back up in verse 158, they don't love God's word. They could care less about God's word. They swerve from it. They disobey it. They have no concern for God's word. The term spiritual vitality is directly associated with a love for God's word. One sure way you can tell if your interest in God's word is genuine is by keeping track of how often you open it. I love God's Word, but I just never open it. Uh, I love steak, but I never eat it. I love exercising, but I never do it. No, you don't. Right? If, If the Scripture, your copy of the Scripture, sits on the shelf at home until Sunday morning, then that should tell you something. Maybe you should try to, if this concerns you, open the word and read it. That's a good idea. So the importance of prioritizing God's word is pretty basic for Christians. It's through God's word that he speaks to us, right? It's through that word that we learn of him and we learn of eternal life, John 17, three, to know eternal life is to know the Father and the son. How are you gonna to get to know them? It's through God's word that we're transformed. It's through God's word and prioritizing it that we demonstrate an affection for its author. You know, one of the things that happened um, before Sherry and I got married is, um, before email, text, and all that stuff, um, we still use pigeons, you know, back then. <laughs> Um, we would write letters to one another. And uh, I couldn't wait to receive one. And I would read it and loved reading it and rereading it and looking for nuances and all the stuff that you can imagine. Why? Because I love Sherry. It's the same with God's Word. I, why wouldn't you read it if you love God? It's his love letter to you. First John 5.3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is love for God. We keep his commandments. We, We read his word, we know his commandments, we keep them. And his commandments aren't burdensome for those of us who love God. Finally, spiritual vitality results in a love for God's people. So, God God gives us spiritual vitality because of his steadfast love. That spiritual vitality results in a love for God's word. That spiritual vitality results in a love for God's people. Now, uh, I'm gonna make a confession here. That particular point isn't in the resh stanza. We have to broaden our context and get to other stanzas in Psalm 119 where he says that on numerous occasions but I'm going to go even broader in my context to support this point. Okay? Spiritual vitality results in a love for God's people. A great indication of your love for God and His word is your desire to obey it. Right? (laughs) To put it into practice. This is what we learn. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. It's not rocket science. And, and so in view of that, spiritual vitality results in the love for God's people because we come across regularly exhortations, encouragements, commands to love one another, don't we? From God. 1 John 4, 1 John, the whole entire epistle of 1 John, but I'll just read 4, 11, and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, and that's a statement meaning he and he has, we are also to love one another. No one, who, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the way that, that people who don't know God are going to know that, that we know God is by our love. I think Jesus said that, didn't he? Somewhere it says, John 13, to be more specific, Jesus said that very thing. And part of loving one another is putting others first. Let me, let me ask if you would turn with me to Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Some of our small groups are going to be discussing this um, this coming week, or this week maybe. Um, but let me just read for you and make just a couple comments uh, on these important verses. Philippians 2, 1-4 through 4, speaks of Christian love. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, says the apostle, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of cord in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves." Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus did. He, he didn't pull rank. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't, you know, grouse about what he had to give up. No. This is the steadfast love of God flowing through us to one another. Now turn over to chapter 4, verse 5. Philippians 4, verse 5. Keep in mind what is happening here in Philippians. I mean, we were just here, right? It wasn't that long ago we were right here. Um, In verse 2 of chapter 4, you see that these two ladies couldn't get along. They couldn't agree with each other. He says... Paul says, I entreat Iodi, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Um, these two women were faithful, loving servants of God in the church of Philippi. They were in the middle of the church. They were an important part of the church, and, and Paul knew it, and Paul knew that neither of their opinions was wrong, but they had a hard time coming to agreement. And so Paul, the apostle inspired by God, says in verse 4, here's how I want you to resolve your differences. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice in your opinion. Rejoice in the Lord. And Paul is not saying which one is right or wrong. That's not the point. He doesn't care. Why doesn't he care? Because it doesn't matter. So he says, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say it, rejoice. And then here is the focus of his instruction in verse 5 Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Remember, we spent quite a bit of time, in fact, I think a whole sermon, talking about that word, reasonableness. And here's what it means to, to remind you be quick to yield. In fact, be first to yield. Paul says, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. What matters is if you yield. If you give up your rights. And just so you know that I'm not speaking of one side or the other of this mask issue. And who knows, maybe maybe Yodia and Sintichi were arguing about masks. Could have been. But just so you know, I'm not on one side or the other. He says this in verse 6. Yodia and Sintichi? Don't be anxious about anything. Why? Because God's in charge. That's why. (laughs) So now let's go back to Ephesians, one book back towards the front of your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And notice how Paul begins this exhortation I, the guy who's in prison, Okay. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God, Jesus particularly, as beloved children. The steadfast love of God flows through us and should flow out through us to others, starting with those in the church. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children of God, and walk in love, as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's how Jesus did it. Friends, we have a wonderful opportunity in front of us, as difficult as it is, to demonstrate the love of God. To one another, You know, many of us have thought that this is a horrible uh, season that we've been in for many reasons, and I would agree it's not been fun. But again, is it outside of God's providence that this happened? Is it outside of his plan that it happened? Is it, did it surprise God that this happened? Okay, then what's the point of it for us today here in this room? Do you think maybe God could use it for our good? I think that's the purpose. And so maybe we ought to approach things from that perspective. Can you see the love of God seeping out of you and onto others around you? No matter what what your opinion is, can anybody accuse you of not being loving? Can't be those of us who are loved by God's steadfast love. Do people around you recognize the love of God in you? Is that an identifying mark, a prevailing identifying mark in my life, in yours? What is the evidence of it? What would you point to if you were on the stand in a court of law? Prove to us that you love the church, that you love the people in the church. What would you say? Exhibit A, B, C, D, how far down could you go? Friends, this is uh, the concluding sermon in Psalm 119 Resh stanza about how God answers prayer and why he answers prayer. But there is such practical daily things just right on the surface for us. I hope you've heard what I'm saying um, I hope you understand my love for you and my concern that you see things the way God sees things for your good and His glory. We're going to move in now to a time of the of, um, Lord's Supper. One of the things that the Lord's Supper is designed to do is to confirm our unity. All right, unity in the Spirit and bond of peace. That that's one of the things that the Lord's Supper does. It confirms our unity with each other. And so today, not only are we going to read the <clears throat> Apostles' Creed together, but we're going to. I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind. Um, uh, Holding the elements, after we've served you up front, just go back to your seat and hold them until everybody's received them, and then we'll take them together. Does that make sense? This is a demonstration, an outward demonstration of our inward commitment to being unified in the spirit and in the bond of peace. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to stand with me and read the Apostles Creed at this time it's in your bulletin I think it's on the overhead also uh, and we're gonna read this in unison and then I'm gonna read the, the words of institution from 1st Corinthians um, and then the me and the elders will serve you the Lord's Supper so <clears throat> let's read this together I believe in God the Father Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. From thence he's come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, amen. Elders in the room, would you please come forward and help me serve the Lord's Supper to God's people. Um, Let me read these words of institution from the Apostle Paul for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me ask God's blessing on this service of the elements holy father we thank you that you have provided such a clear portrayal of the love of god towards us in christ in these elements it is impossible to misunderstand to see the 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 elements that that portray the the broken body of christ and the spilt blood renews our affection for you, reminds us of your steadfast love that you had towards us th- throughout eternity. God, we are uh, needy people. We need your Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts to to protect our unity, to to bless us in the beloved. Father, help us to grab hold of Christ in these difficult times and 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 remind be reminded of his great and steadfast love towards each of us, his children. Father, we we desire to please the Lord Jesus. We desire to be led by the Spirit. We desire to be glorifying to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for the work of Christ on Calvary that makes all of this possible. I pray this in his name. Amen.